we've been diving deep into climate data, modeling recent trends and projections of impacts for Costa Rica, temperature, precipitation, heat stress. But these are just a starting point. What does the data actually mean? Exactly. This afternoon, we'll be getting outside of the studio to explore that question in a little bit more detail. The numbers represent the direct physical changes that climate change is causing. But what about the other changes? Climate change has both a direct and indirect impacts. This episode is just a prelude, a light introduction to topics we'll dig deeper into in the field and later on during our adaptation workshop. Hi, everyone. This is Francesca Dimre and Kelton Miner, and this is the Adaptation Spaceship Podcast, part one of our series, Designing for Climate Adaptation in Costa Rica. We're on the ground in San Jose with CID, the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design, and this series accompanies a workshop we're teaching here as part of CID's summer school. So often when anyone talks about climate impacts, the big ticket items are things like drought or sea level. What is it going to look like for Costa Rica? Absolutely. So it's important to realize that Costa Rica might just represent a small portion of the Earth's landmass, but it has a large part of its biodiversity. And part of the reason for that is that the topography of Costa Rica, the valleys, the hillsides, the mountainsides, are incredibly diverse. And they have different uh, microclimates that support a variety of different living organisms. So for Costa Rica, the impacts really vary by sector and also geography. Um, we can see that there are projections of increased uh, instances of, of drought, which can you know, impact the ecology and also agriculture. We also see that there will be more days with intense heat stress. So the frequency and the intensity of the temperature distribution and allocation is increasing. What does that really mean? It just means that we're going to be exposed in Costa Rica to hotter days more often. And of course, that has implications for just about every ecological system, not just humans, but of course, the surrounding ecology as well. So let's talk about that ecology. I think it's a really interesting place to start because humans, we are nature, we're a part of nature, and as such, we're not living alone with the climate crisis. There are a lot of other species and ecosystems that are also having to respond to a shifting climate. Absolutely. You know, climate change is affecting ecosystems broadly, and as humans, we're just a small part of that ecological sort of chain or system. Um, and of course, this is already manifesting itself in the form of natural adaptation. So adaptation, buzzword. We use it a lot in this studio, but it's important to realize that as the environment changes, organisms will also try to change to survive and thrive. And of course, this is a massive playing field. There are a lot of different organisms and different backgrounds that are basically competing for limited resources. So what do we mean by that? Okay, well, looking at Costa Rica, it's very, very clear that some of the ways that climate change already visibly is interacting with the local organisms takes place through shifts 
in the actual uh, altitude of the cloud bank and the cloud forest. So we see that actually the cloud base, as it gets warmer, is rising. What does that mean? Well, there are certain organisms that have developed, evolved, for very specific niches, zones. You can imagine if you had x-ray vision and you stared up across the mountains, peering through the canopies, you would maybe see different colors for different organisms that live in parts of the mountain, and you would see patchworks of color, a kaleidoscope, if you will. And as that cloud bank rises higher and higher, those splashes of color would have to move because the environment that they evolved for, their home, if you will, is quite literally shifting. It's moving up the mountainside. And what do you mean by cloud bank? Yeah. So in Costa Rica, the ecology, of course, again, is incredibly diverse, but the cloud forest, which is a very unique um, biological and physical microclimate, um, forms the home for numerous organisms that really have to live with a constant exposure to horizontal rain. So basically a constant exposure of moisture and mist, if you will. This is the cloud that we see to our eyes, but for the organisms living there, this is an essential part of their environment. Hmm. And that's moving higher up because of climate change and higher temperatures? That's right. So there's been a direct observed and well-documented rise in this cloud bank, and there's projections in the future that this will continue to rise. And of course, for those organisms that are basically moving up the mountain, you can imagine that as you move further and further up, at some point there's limited territory and space. So all of these different organisms, which you know have developed for incredibly specialized positions on this you know, uh, mountain and the canopy, all of a sudden are competing for limited resources. And thus the whole ecological system uh, starts to become, well, placed under stress. What I think is really interesting about this challenge of life zones migrating is that there's kind of a ceiling or a limit almost on adaptation. There's, there's a window within these organisms can live uh, and they can't migrate off the top of the mountain. So there's sort of a, a ceiling that they have to stay within. Um, and there's only so far that organisms can really shift to adapt to climate change. Absolutely. There, you know, there are limits to adaptation. And um, you know, an interesting case, not to do with the you know, cloud forest and, and the sort of shifting height of the cloud base, but, but historically in Costa Rica, a important case was the loss of the golden toad. And this became kind of a climate drama, if you will, yeah. um, because really the toad disappeared in the late uh, 1980s. Uh, 1989, I believe, was the last time that it was observed in Monteverde. And in the mid-1980s, it was hotter and drier for an extended period of time, which placed a lot of stress onto the uh, golden toad. When the golden toad disappeared, a lot of people speculated that, well, this might have been a you know, casualty of uh, global warming and climate change. First species to go extinct. Yeah. And this, this of course, made big uh, headlines around the world. There was a lot of discussion about it. More recently, further analyses have kind of revealed a more complex picture. And I think this is important because when we talk about environmental stress, when we talk about climate impacts, oftentimes 
there's a signal, but there's also noise. And it's important to realize that multiple environmental changes are happening at the same time. And oftentimes they're acting you know, uh, independently, but in others they're acting jointly. So one of the key takeaways from this retrospective of the murder mystery, if you will, of the Golden Toad was that that same period of time, that same period of relative warming in the, the 1980s, um, coincided with multiple other potential factors. So one was a period of El Nino, um, which also was uh, impacting the uh, sort of uh, warming there. So that's a natural uh, cycle, a natural oscillation in the world climate patterns. We also, of course, in that same period, humanity was, you know, uh, continuing to release a lot of uh, CO2 and greenhouse gases. And so it really becomes difficult to parse the sort of impact of the natural oscillation of Enzo or El Nino versus uh, the uh, climate change impact in that short period of time. And part of the reason there is that we just sort of lack the spatial and temporal coverage with the meteorological data for Costa Rica and that key area during that period of time historically. These are all important ingredients for being able to uh, really identify what's going on. So what's important is that that period of heating, whether it was natural or human cause, made the toad more susceptible to the chytrid fungus. And the chytrid fungus itself had really arrived and been dispersed by uh, human influence, sort of exploited the human uh, you know, infrastructure that, that had developed rapidly with the advent of shipping routes and, and human technology in such a short period of time. So all of these systems, biological, natural, human, all of these systems are kind of interlinked. And it's important as we think about climate change impacts to realize that uh, notions of vulnerability, susceptibility, multi-step processes of, of causal impacts are basically necessary to dissect what's going on, to really understand the complex causal chains. Yeah. And that there's always going to be a little bit of uncertainty. We can't quite point to the perfect cause of any one event. Yeah, you know, it basically, in order to get to causality, we have to control for all of those other potential confounders in the room. And it is possible. And, and we'll discuss a little bit about how we might try to do that statistically, but it requires really, really amazing data coverage. One of the aspects of the chytrid fungus that's kind of interesting is it's an invasive species. And climate change can be combined with, as you were saying, the other environmental stressors or changes that are happening and opening up vulnerable organisms for new organisms that are coming into an ecosystem or coming into a space. Yeah, I mean, when we think about environmental changes, uh, and that's a term that, that we'll also use a lot, global environmental change. Climate change, again, is one component of the sort of massive, large-scale, distributed effects that humans and human activities are sort of, um, you know, having on the planet, on a planetary scale. And that's, that's huge because in the case of the chytrid fungus, basically, the story goes that the chytrid fungus hitched a ride. It was a hitchhiker, if you will. It jumped aboard ships. It jumped aboard uh, planes, the trade of other amphibians uh, uh, to pet shops across the world, um, uh, food supplies. Basically, it hitched a ride 
on top of human technologies that instantly spread the fungus in a way that it never could naturally, at least without the sort of natural vehicle of humans, all across the world to almost every single amphibian habitat. And that's why we've seen such a rapid, large-scale decline of uh, really a, a large chunk of the uh, amphibian organisms in, in the world. Pretty sobering topic. Absolutely. But important to take into account with everything else to realize that, you know, these changes, again, aren't independent of each other. And also for us, uh, as we think about adaptation, we have to acknowledge these multiple scales and dimensions of environmental change in order to act and also design preferable, uh, desirable futures, not just for humans, but also for other ecological systems of which we are a part. You know, I think it's important to realize that as humans, we are a part of nature, but not apart from it. Yeah. So these topics of, of competition, of shifting territories and migration and limits to adaptation are things we'll continue to explore as we talk about sort of the social ecology and how we design for it going forward. So put on your detective hats because there's a lot of mysteries that we will be uh, delving deeper into as we think about the implications of a changing climate and changing environment for people in Costa Rica. And on that note, I think we are getting ready to jump back into the field. So we'd like to leave you with a bit of a, a question. How do we identify the impact of climate change? How do you separate the signal from the noise? <laughs> 